Here's the story of Jonah. Jonah. We're going to explore the beginning part of his life, the various prophecies that he had, and of course, the most famous story of Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the fish. We're going to answer some questions like, was Jonah swallowed by a fish or by a whale? If Yoina was so righteous, then how is it that he decided to run away from Hashem? What was the origin story of Yoina? What did Yoina, Jonah, what did he do in the belly of the fish? And additionally, at the very end of the topic, we'll discuss the custom to read the story on Yom Kippur and the, the privilege to, to buy the reading of Mafta Yoina, does it actually make you rich? Is this a real thing? And are there, are, are there sources for this custom to auction this off and pay ridiculous amounts of money to have the privilege to be the one to read it? The story of Yoina begins right at the beginning. Right at the beginning of his birth. Although people don't know the story of Yoina from the beginning, his story of, of his early days is quite, quite a fascinating, fascinating one. Yoina was born in the very north of Israel. He was born to the tribe of Zavulun, which was the tribe that was blessed by Yaakov, the son of Yaakov that was blessed to be um, involved in commerce, be involved in, in business. His mother was from the tribe of Asher, so he came from two different tribes, although, of course, he was from the tribe of Zavulun himself. And his father, who was a prophet and a very great man, passed away when Yoina was an extremely young boy. And he was raised by his mother in extreme poverty through, uh, during one of the worst droughts in Jewish history. In order to understand the context of this drought, this, you know, this lack of rain for many years, you need to first understand the, the basic backdrop of what was going on in, in the times of Israel at that time. The, at that time, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. There was the northern, king, northern kingdom, which was ruled by various families who ruled and then were murdered by another family and taken over. And then they ruled for a few generations and then killed by the next family who then ruled for a few generations. Unfortunately, the lion's share of these northern kings were extremely wicked, didn't follow in the ways of Hashem. In fact, they purposely tried to provoke God as much as possible. And prophets would rise and beg and warn and threaten and do whatever they could to try to get the people to repent, unfortunately, usually very much unsuccessfully. The story that we're going to say, the story of Yoina, takes place 86 years after the building of the first base Amigdash. This is not long after King Saul, not long after Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet, not long after King David, not long after King Solomon, literally 86 years after King Solomon built the first temple. And... But now at this point, you know, the kingdoms are not united. The northern kingdom is very wicked. The southern kingdom, however, is being ruled by kings who were very righteous. King Asa and King Yehoshaphat. These were people who were very much connected to God, who encouraged the south of Israel to to go to the base of Midrash, to go to the temple and to connect to God as much as possible. So you had one kingdom that was very wicked, one kingdom that was very righteous, and the northern kingdom had all these incredible, wonderful prophets who God instructed to try to get the north to repent, to try to get the north to come close to Hashem. As wicked as the north of Israel was, it became a lot worse when the prince of the king whose name was Achav, got married to a, a woman from outside of Israel. Her father was the king of Sidon, and her name was Izevel, or more famously known as Jezebel. This Izevel was extremely wicked. She was a very, very vicious person. She was manipulative and evil, and she introduced, once her husband became the actual king, once her father-in-law, King Omri, died, she introduced a whole bunch of cults, a whole bunch of dreadful idol-worshipping practices into the northern kingdom. So as bad as, that, as bad as it had been until that point, once she came on the scene together with her husband, the behavior of the north of Israel was at its absolute worst. These idols of Tzidon, called Baal and Asherah respectively, were terrifying and dreadful cults, and people would, would um, live their lives with these dreadful um, idol worshippings, and it was so inhumane and so, dis so such repulsive behavior, but worst of all, it was such a direct um, 
counter to the holiness and purity and spirituality that Judaism espouses. These these idol-worshipping cults were, were just su- in such opposite to, to the behavior that God expects from us. And Hashem was very upset. And at that time, in addition to this um, pushing of this dreadful idol-worshipping behavior, there was a massive push by Ezebel to hunt as many prophets of God who were trying to get the people to repent and to kill them. And at that time, the, the prophets of Hashem were literally rounded up and assassinated, rounded up and killed, and they weren't able to survive. There was a very righteous man. He was actually a chief advisor of the king Ahav, and he in secret was a prophet himself. His name was Avadya, he was a convert, and he gathered prophets and paid for them, hid them in caves, and he paid for literally for their survival, because if they would go out in the open, they would be, they would be killed. But at that time, aside for those, those groups of, of, of prophets that Avadya himself had hidden, all the rest of the prophets were put to sword and were killed. And there were very few that managed to survive. Aside for one, one of the most fi- famous prophets in history was at large at that time. His life was in entire, entirely in danger, but Eliyahu Elijah the prophet, would go around and would rebuke the Jewish people, and he was entirely unscared of Izevel and Ahav, and he, whatever messages God would give him, he would give in, 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 in spite of the fact that his life was literally hanging by a thread, because if he were to be caught, he would be killed. And throughout his entire um, prophetic career, let's call it, his life was literally on the line, because soldiers and Priests of Baal and Nashe were always trying to attack him and kill him and, and get rid of him because out of all the prophets, he was, he was the worst. He was the, the prophet of God who, who was entirely unscared. King Ahab had, an, had another advisor, a wealthy man, a very, very wealthy man, who was related to King Ahab himself and entirely wicked. And he thought to himself, I want to do something to, to build a name for myself. And he said, well, the best thing I could do to build a name is to build a city. If I build a city, well, then, you know, my name will be connected to that city for, forever. And, you know, I'll be able to kind of establish my name for all times. And so he thought the city of Jericho, Yericho, had been destroyed hundreds of years earlier when Yeshua, Joshua, had come into Israel. The first war, the first um, campaign that Joshua, Yeshua had done was to the city of Yericho, and the walls of the city had literally not crumbled, but had fallen into the ground. And Yeshua had then made this incredible statement. It was a curse. It was a, no person is to rebuild the city, because I want this city to remain unbuilt for all time, so everyone could come to the city, and they could see the destruction and remember that this city hadn't been destroyed in a traditional, regular way, but it had been destroyed by an incredible miracle, they'll see this miracle. The walls literally fallen into the ground, and they'll say, oh, I remember the miracle that God made, and this will encourage people to, to, to remember God. Chael thought to himself, well, perfect, let me rebuild the city. Now, the curse that Yeshua had made is, he said, if someone rebuilds the city of Yericho, when they start the building the rebuilding, let's call it, their oldest child will die. Along the process of rebuilding the city, all the rest of their children will, will die. And when they put the doors of the building up, uh, the, the doors of the city up, their youngest child will die. And Chael, he thought the whole thing was a joke and he couldn't care less. And he, he, he wanted to go out of his way to, to, to upstand Yehoshua. So he did it. And exactly as Yeshua had predicted, that's exactly what happened to him. When he started the rebuilding of Yericho, his oldest son, Aviram, dies. And along, that was by the foundation, and along the process, all his children die until he finally puts up the doors and his doors and his youngest child, Seguv, dies. And everyone saw, I mean, it was literally, it was this massive proclamation that he was trying to make. And, but it, it had such a counter effect. Everyone watched as exactly as Yeshua had predicted hundreds of years earlier, 300 and... 400 and change years earlier, exactly as Yeshua as had predicted, the, this is exactly what happened to Chael. And so he sat in mourning, finishing the city, but sat in, sitting in mourning over his, over his last son who had died. Now he had played a little game, hopefully uh, trying to avoid the curse, because he had like a little bit of a thought that perhaps this, co- this curse would happen. So he said, you know, I won't name the city Yerichoi, I will name it Yericha. 
Instead of having a vav, an oi sound at the end, I'll have a huh sound at the end. You know, now it's a different name. So I'm not really rebuilding the same city. I'm rebuilding that city, but with a different name because it's similar, but not the same. So he sat down and of course, people came to, to comfort him. He had lost all his children. Hashem told Eliohanavi, the prophet at that time, I have another mission for you. Go to hell and, and go in and um, comfort him. And of course, you know, let him know that this is this is the the act of this is the 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 consequence. But Eliyahu didn't want to go. He told Hashem, "I'm going to go. I have this vengeance for God. I can't watch people insult God and just stand by and and not def- not defend your honor, Hashem." So he told Eliyahu didn't want to go. Hashem told Eliyahu, "Whatever you say, someone happens to anger you when you're there. Whatever you say, I'll see it through. Go." So Eliyahu he picks himself up and he goes and of course him going was extremely dangerous the prophets of Hashem were, were they were they were killed on sight but Eliyahu Navi was unscared and so he went to Chel's house and as he went to Chel's house the king himself shows up together with all the relatives of the king why they didn't kill him on the spot I don't know maybe it was the fact that this was a, a very sensitive event it was you know it was uh, the mourning of of Chel's children maybe he got a pass but they, they didn't kill him and Eliyahu Navi was quiet. He was just standing there very quietly. And one of the royal members who was visiting Chel, he mentioned in passing about this massive elephant in the room, the fact that this curse of Yeshua had happened exactly as Yeshua had said. And Ahav, hearing this, was he, you know, he wasn't impressed by this suggestion that this was all the act of Hashem. He said, no, God doesn't behave in any pattern that we could, that we could um, f- find. God just kills people and does good to people entirely arbitrarily. God doesn't care about what happens. And he started espousing a whole bunch of heresy. And Eliyahu is listening. Eliyahu was very upset. And King Ahav's biggest point was, look. Chael changed the name of the city. He didn't call it Yerichoi. He called it Yericha. And it's still, he still had the curse, which means obviously the curse did never work. In the first place, it was just happened, it was just happen chance that Chael lost all his children in exactly the same pattern that Yeshua Joshua had threatened. Now, Leonovi heard this and Leonovi said, what are you talking about? When Joshua had made the curse, Joshua had made two curses. Curse number one, you're not to rebuild this very city and give it any name. Curse number two, you're not to give any other city the same name as Yericho, as Jericho, which means you could pick a city in a different country. You're not allowed to name that city Yericho. You're not allowed to name that city Jericho because we don't want that name to ever continue in any other city. That was the curse. And Elio told King Ahav and Chel that because Chel had rebuilt the city, even though he had changed the name slightly of the name of the city, he'd still broken the curse of Joshua and Elio declared, he said, blessed be the name of Hashem, blessed be the name of God who upholds the decrees of the righteous. Yeshua, a very righteous man, had made a curse hundreds of years earlier and it, and it was fulfilled exactly as he predicted it. King Ahav wasn't very happy that he had been, you know, upstood by Elio Hanavi, who had just shown up and, and proven that King Ahav was entirely wrong in his, you know, his cavalier assessment of the situation. And so King Ahav told Eliyahu, well, if that's the case, who's greater, Joshua or Moses, Yeshua or Moshe? You're saying that Yeshua's curse is, is so powerful. What about his teacher, Moshe? His, what about his, the curses that he made? And Eliyahu said, of course Moshe is greater. So Ahav said, if that's the case, why is it that the student's curse, Yeshua's curse, was fulfilled? But Moshe's curse in the Shema, if you open the second paragraph, it clearly states, if people follow after the idols, they turn away from God, Hashem will withhold rain. And Ahav said, look at this. We've been serving all the different idols. We're killing all the prophets. We're doing whatever we want in the north north half of Israel. We have rain. So you're claiming that, you know, all these curses in the Torah, they all get fulfilled and you're so happy and you're blessing God that curses are fulfilled. Look at this. Moses, the greatest of the prophets, Yeshua's, Joshua's own teacher, said there would be no rain. And look at this, there's rain. Elio, upon hearing this, became inflamed he was so upset that someone was mocking Moshe and mocking God and so he said by God till I say so by my word there won't be any rain and he also added in dew as well which is an interesting conversation there'll be none of it in the north of Israel until I say so 
Now, of course, everyone assumed that was just one big joke. And Eliom, you know, marches right out, and they don't assume that this is serious. And a short while later, there was no rain, and they started to realize that this was very much real. And now began a, a manhunt for Elio, Elijah the prophet, but now it was in earnest. Now there was a lot riding. They needed him to undo his curse because there was no rain. And Israel is very, very heavily dependent on rain, which is good for the, for the Jews' connection to God because we're always having to beg God for rain. In this case, they weren't interested in doing repentance. They just wanted to find Elijah and force him to undo his curse and just they're now his enemy number one in addition because they were so angry that he had literally stopped the rain from coming. Eliyahu had to go on the run. Everyone was searching him absolutely everywhere. Later on, it got to such a degree the king himself had, jo- had joined the manhunt to find Eliyahu and Navi, to find Elijah the prophet. The officers of the king were tasked with going to look for Eliyahu. It was This was national security um, focus, number one, going and finding Elijah, seeing where he is and getting him killed or, or undoing the undoing this curse but there was no water and this was a very very serious people started dying and Eliyahu went to go hide he went to go va- hide in a place called the valley of Karis it's a place near the Jordan river near the Yardane and there was no food there so he ran away as Hashem had ordered him to do and he had no food the, the water was there at least for the meanwhile so God, Hashem made a miracle God sent ravens, these black birds that are usually known to be extremely vicious. Hashem sent these birds and they went to the kitchen of the king. And we'll discuss exactly what that means. They went to the kitchen of the king and they brought food for Elio. So the whole year that Elio stayed there, food was brought to him. And he survived the year in the middle of Noah because these ravens brought the food for him. There's a discussion, of course, which king did the food come from? Because King King Ahav, the king of the north of Israel, wasn't exactly a pious Jew. Go, getting the food from his kitchen wouldn't have been um, it wouldn't have been kosher food. Now, of course, Avadia was the one that ran King Ahav's house, but even so, there are there are many opinions that say the food didn't come from the north of Israel. The ravens flew to the southern half of Israel, went to Jerusalem, and took food from King Jehoshaphat, who was an exceptionally righteous man. He was related to the north of Israel king. He was King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat were closely related, but King Jehoshaphat was very, very righteous, and King Ahab was ex- was was wicked. He had his moments, as we're going to discuss later on. They brought the food, the ravens brought the food, and they gave the food to Elio, and Elio, Elijah, survived the year. What's really interesting, in, in brackets, the ravens, they gave, they knew, in throughout, like the raven, the, the raven history, they always knew they were earmarked to do something really great. They always had this moment of glory. When Noah, in the, when Noah, in the ark, had been instructed by, by Hashem to go find, you know, habitation to go see if the flood was over so he sent a bird so he said well let me go send the raven the ravens were entirely uninterested in 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 helping out they said we have been picked to help a righteous person but we know that it's not noah it's not noah and so therefore they didn't want to help they're like we have our moment to shine right now when we're uninterested in being helpful and Noah was entirely unimpressed he was like well i need help right now why aren't you helping but the rover ravens wouldn't wouldn't help and then noah of course sent the dove and the dove was a lot more helpful but the ravens knew that we're going to have our moment to shine. Of course, that's not a very great quality. You, when, when you have the chance to help someone, help someone. Even though you know, yeah, you can do something great later on. You could do that too, great. There's, it's, not, it's not a contradiction when you want to do something good or something happy or something kind to someone else. Find as many opportunities as you can. Don't just say, well, I'm going to just do my one thing and that's all I'm going to do. That, unfortunately, is what the, the raven did. But in this particular case, they saved Elijah's life. They saved Elio and Navi's life. He survived the whole year. The problem was he wasn't seeing how much people were suffering because he was all by himself in the middle of nowhere, surviving. And Hashem realized it's time for Elio and Navi to get a, a, a close picture of exactly what's going on in Israel itself. And so Hashem gave a message to Elio and said, I want you to travel to the north of Israel to a city called Sarfas. And it might have been in Sidon, but it was it was the north of Israel. And I want you to live there. I've prepared for you a woman who's going to save your life, who's going to give you food. 
So Eliel was being instructed by God to move locations. He's now moving to the city to habitation, which of course is extremely dangerous because the entire country was searching for him. But God said to do it. So he picked himself up and he started traveling. He had no food. He just kept on traveling. He comes to the city of Sarfas and now he's like, okay, I shall prepare a person for me. I need to determine who's this woman who's going to save my life. And as he walks into the city, he sees there's a woman, a widow who was collecting small branches to make a fire. And so he thinks to himself, how do I know if this is the person? This is the first person that I'm seeing, but is this the person who Hashem has prepared? And he decided he's going to run a test. The same type of test that Eliezer had made on Rebecca, had made on Rivka many years earlier. He said, if this person is kind, it's very likely that God has prepared her to be the to be the person to save my life. But if she's not a kind person, well then she's probably not going to be the person that's going to be there to save my life. So he went up to her and he asked her, can I please have water? The same test that Eliezer had given to Rivka when trying to find a wife for Isaac by the well, Yitzchak by the well. In this case, Eliyahu asked this widow of Tsarfas, can I have water? Now, of course, the stakes were a lot higher. Water was a, a, a commodity like gold at this point. And if she would say yes, well, then he would understand. Well, she's extremely, extremely generous and, and, and kind. This probably is the person that God has prepared. And she said yes. And once he saw that she said yes, according to one opinion, he, was a, he, he said, okay, if she's willing to say yes, I mean, she's the right person. Now I need to ask for food. According to another opinion, he said, well, you know, I still don't know. Maybe, maybe she's not the right person. So he, he asked for a further son. He said, how about some bread? Can I have work? Once he saw she was willing to do it, he didn't even get the water. He said, how about bread? And now he wanted to see, would she give the bread? Or would she say, okay, well, you know, right now is a famine. You know, we've been over a year going through this famine. I'm not giving up my bread. As you're going to see in a moment, she literally had very little left. And she, she said, as Hashem lives, her reply to Eliol was, I have nothing baked. Nothing, no bread's ready. All I have is a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And she said, I'm gathering the sticks to go home and prepare for my son. And she said like this, our plan is like this. We have so little left. We're having one last meal to eat out of the little bit of flour that I have and a little bit of oil. And the next plan that we have is to die because there is literally no food left. And what's really interesting, if you pay attention to the words, she knew she was a special woman and she had this, this perception that she was talking to someone, not a regular person. She understood that this person was special. And when she said, when she invoked God, like trying to say, you know, by the life of God, this is my situation. She says, as the God, your God lives. She already identified this person is really, really great. And this person considers God to be their God. And he's on the level where this God could be called Eliyahu's God. Of course, she wouldn't realize exactly how great he was until later. But at this point, she already determined this was a very special person. So Eliyahu tells her, how about let's do like this. You prepare some food for me first, and from the leftovers, make food for yourself. Now, this was a massive test. She, she had just said that she had so little food that she didn't have enough for two meals. And now she's going to split her one meal with with a stranger who just walked into the city. And yes, she, had ter- she determined that this person was righteous, but, you know, there's righteous and there's giving away, you know, your last food. And she had a son at home who she needed to, she, she needed to um, give food to as well. And Elio promised her like this. He said, give me the first, you know, the first cake that you prepare and take the rest of the flour and oil and make your own food. But from that point, your flour and your oil will not stop until Hashem brings rain. And now the question, of course, is, you know, would, would she would she have enough faith and would she be that kind of a person, that, that kind of a kind person to be able to actually see that through? Now, here comes the interesting part. The little boy she had at home was Yoina. Yoina ben Amitai, the famous Yoina who, you know, they're the, the being swallowed by the fish, which we'll deal with that story. It's going to be in many, many years now, at, you know, along as, as we progress with the podcast. But that little boy was Yoina. That's the first we know of Yoina. The widow from Sarfas, the, the young boy at home who lost his father, who had such a righteous mother, was Yoina ben Amitai. He was at home. Now, the question, of course, is why did Eliyahu demand food first? You know, that's a very tall order. Asking for food from a stranger, that's already a big, a big ask. You know, who are you to ask for food? Asking it during one of the worst famines in Jewish history, that is an extremely tall order, especially when there's no more food left. That's it. It's one last meal. And 
But Eliyahu had gotten taken, taken this one step further and he had asked for food first. And of course, that's a very large question. Why did he have the, why did he have the food first? There's a very interesting discussion. There's a book called Tana Devei Eliyahu. It's a book that's written by Elijah the prophet. It's written by Eliyahu Hanavi. And some of the things that are written there are written in first person. It's Eliyahu Hanavi actually writing and he's saying, you know, things that experiences that he had, terror discussions that he experienced. And he said that one time he came upon the rabbis. He, he came to the study hall and he saw a whole group of rabbis. And I have reason to believe that this story happened you know, a good thousand years later, when the rabbis were in the city, in the country of Babylon, in Bavel, he came across the rabbis and they were all arguing. And people were trying to discuss what um, tribe does Eliyahu, does Elijah come from? Does he come from among the children of Rachel? Or does he come from among the sons of Leah? You know, which tribe is it? And it was a very big discussion. And Eliyahu Navi comes in and he sees them arguing and he says... If you want my opinion, you know, he told them, I'm, I'm Elijah the prophet. Remember, Elijah the prophet, he went up to heaven. He never died. So he kept on coming back and, and, and you know, having conversations with, with the great sages over all the, all the generations. And so he told them, he said, listen, you want my opinion? My opinion, this is me. I'll tell you exactly what tribe I come from. I come from the tribe of Rachel, from Rachel. And he brought a proof. He said, you want a proof that this is really the fact? If you open up Divrei Hayamim, you actually see that... It, my name is there. And I come from, from the tribe of Binyamin, Benjamin. So they said, well, that's a nice opinion, which is really interesting. You know, I'm glad you shared your, your piece. But the truth of the matter is, we have a question on that. We're not so sure that that's correct. Why? Because in the story of Yoina as a young, as a young child, when you met his mother, you asked for food first. That's Koyan type of, of behavior. The priest asks for food first. And the fact that you ask for food first must mean that you're a priest, you're a Koyan. So Eliyahu said, that's not a good proof. He said, the reason why I asked for food first is because that young boy that this widow had at home was a special child. This boy was Mashiach, the descendant of Joseph, the descendant of Yosef. And that we, we have a tradition that when Mashiach comes, there's going to be two types of Mashiach. There's going to be two, two types of Messiahs. One Mashiach is going to be Mashiach, the descendant of David HaMelech, who's going to be the king Messiah, the king Mashiach. And another one is going to be a Mashiach called Mashiach ben Yosef, and he's going to lead the Jewish people in the epic war at the end of days. And Eliyahu said, I wanted to teach the Jewish people a lesson. I wanted to let them know how it works. That first, I come, and I, I announce the coming of Mashiach, and then Mashiach ben Yosef arrives. So he said, why did I eat the food first? To show that this is the order. This young boy, Yoina, at home, he's Mashiach ben Yosef. And so me, Eliyahu, and Navi, I have the food first. Just as when Mashiach comes, I will arrive first, and I will announce the coming of Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. That's so very interesting. So one of the reasons why Eliyahu had his food had had his demand of the food first is because he was trying to teach a valuable lesson for all time for the Jewish people how Elijah and Mashiach how it all works the order of events and a second opinion and this is just fantastic is that Abarbanel and the Radak say why did Eliyahu Anavi um, have his food first Eliyahu Anavi is a Koyan even after everything we, we just learned that Abarbanel and the Radak and many of the other rabbis say we still hold that Eliyahu is a Kayan, and because he's a Kayan, well, he needed to eat first. He said, give me some of your food first, and then you eat first, which is so interesting that even though Eliyahu says, I'm not a Kayan, the rabbis still hold, yeah, Eliyahu is a Kayan. A third reason is, Eliyahu told the widow, you're, you don't have much left to eat, but you're not dying just yet. You still have one more meal left. I, on the other hand, had just spent all this time traveling. My life is in danger right now. By the time you finish having your portion and then give me a little bit of the leftovers, I might be dead. Feed me first because I might not survive. Eliol was literally on the brink of starvation. A fourth reason, which is very interesting, is, and this, this, one, this one's a very, a very loaded lesson as well. Eliol told her like this. He said, um, incredible miracles are about to happen. Your food is going to continue undisturbed until the until the famine is over, you're always going to have flour in your in your little container, and you're always going to have oil in your little container. No matter how much you pour, it's always going to remain in there. 
Eliyahu said, if you make your food first, and then you make my food first, when the blessing is ready to be activated, because you've done this incredible kindness of giving me charity, there'll be nothing left inside your containers. So how's a miracle? Miracles have to go on something. And if you've already used up all the flour to make me the, the last piece of, of food, there'll be nothing for that the blessing to be activated on. Better, suggested Elio, first provide me with um, food. That will automatically bless the remainder of your flour and your, and your oil. At that point, you make as much food for yourself and for your son, Yoina. You don't have to worry because your food will, is your leftover containers that have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil slim and that will continue to be blessed and it will never end. And that's exactly what happened. She she had enough faith and enough kindness in her heart to, to actually see this through. She prepared for Eliyahu food. She gave Eli, Elijah Eliyahu food. She started pouring. And for the remainder of the year that Eliyahu was there, no matter how much she poured from that tiny container of flour and no matter how much she poured from oil, the supply was endless. It did not stop. What's really interesting is that Yoina grew up for that year with Elijah the prophet, prophet living upstairs, hiding, hiding in the attic according to one opinion. And not, according to another opinion, Elijah didn't have to hide. They were so far north in the kingdom and so far away from the capital that no one actually recognized Elio. So he walked the streets freely and they had no idea that the most wanted man in the country was just walking among them. But... There are opinions that say that Elio actually just hid. He couldn't afford to, to be walking around the city. He had to hide and he remained hidden in the attic throughout the year. And in, an, another just interesting discussion, which I found absolutely fascinating, was how did the miracle work? Was it that the air above the flower turned into more flower? Or did the flower expand and that became more flower within the within the the flask and the container. And that's, that's, a, that's not, it's a, a discussion among the rabbis. Exactly how that miracle happened. Was it, was the air turning into flour? Or was flour just expanding and becoming more flour? Becoming more flour. After a year of Eli, of Elio, of Elijah being there, he was watching people die, but he didn't see any, any repentance happening. And he said, well, if no repentance is happening, well, Moshe's curse, Moses' curse is still in full, of for, in full force. And Elijah was such a strong personality and he was so dedicated and loved God so much. And he had this deep sense of vengeance for God. He just, like Pinchas, who he shared a soul with, or could be the same person with, that's a discussion of its own right, Elijah just needed to come to the, to the defense of God. And he saw people not behaving correctly, and he's like, well, nothing's changed. Why, why would I now go to, go to King Ahab and take back this curse? Yes, he saw people um, dying and starving, and his heart went out. But at the same time, he said, God's, God's um, honor needs to be defended. And Hashem realized that he needed to up the ante. Hashem had to up the ante in order to get Elio to finally agree to take back this curse and to go to King Ahav and say, the famine is over, it's done. But a year had gone by with Elio by himself, Elijah by himself in the middle of Noah. Now another year had gone by with Elio living in the city of Tsarfas in the attic of, of, the, of the widow, the mother of Yoina. And Hashem said, okay, I need to make, I need to, I need to make, Eliyahu more active in order to, to, to force Eliyahu's hands, to force Elijah's hands. And so even though the widow and her son were extremely righteous, Hashem made Yoina, the, the young boy, become exceptionally sick. And then he died. And the mother came to Eliyahu Navi with her son in her arms and said, What harm have I ever done to you, man of God, man of Hashem, that now you're recalling my sins and causing my son to die? She was so upset. She blamed Eliyahu Navi. She blamed Elijah for the death of her son. Now, of course, why, why did Eliyahu not kill her son? This was, of course, had come from God. So why did she consider Eliyahu to be the, per the reason why her son had died? And she lay all the blame at his feet. There, were, there are a few reasons. There are many reasons. I'll just tell you a few. One of them is... Until Eliyahu had arrived in the city of Tsarifas, she was considered the most righteous person compared to the rest of the city. When you lined her up compared to everyone else in the city, she was miles more righteous than anyone else. And so when Hashem was always looking at her, when God was looking at her, God said, well, look at this woman who's so much greater than the rest of the city. A year had gone by where she's hanging around Eliyahu Anavi, and she's not looking that great anymore. You know, compared to the rest of the city, she's looking fantastic, but compared to Eliyahu, 
She's now looking like a regular person. Eliel was so righteous and so pure and so holy. And he was a prophet of God. And he was he's one of the most incredible, most fascinating uh, biblical um, heroes of all time. And she has him living upstairs. She says, now that God's comparing between me and you, I'm not looking that great. Now God says, well, you know, you're not such a special person. Who says you deserve to have all these wonderful miracles and wonderful opportunities and, and all these blessings in your life? And so... With that new calculation, she's told Elio, of course my son died, but this is your fault. You showed up and now I'm being judged so harshly. Loit um, and Avram, Loit had made a, a, similar calculus, a similar calculation when deciding not to live next, next to his uncle Avraham because he said the same thing. I'm going to be judged based on Avraham's standards. I'd rather, I'd rather take you know, a, a, a good few miles between us. That way I'm not so close and I'm not going to be judged so harshly. Another reason she said is, he said, having a righteous person around is such a blessing, but at the same time, it's a massive responsibility. You're having a bad day and you don't, you don't, you don't honor him as much as possible. You, ha you have a prophet in your house and you have one bad day and now suddenly in heaven they're, they're, they're saying, well, look, look at the way she treats this prophet. She said, it's such an onus, it's such a responsibility to have you around. I'm hosting you and I'm loving every moment, but at the same time, I'm sure I did something along the year which wasn't up to the standard that I should have been able to, should have been treating such a holy man like yourself. And now, look at that. I made one mistake, obviously, throughout the year. Now, I'm being punished. My punishment is that my son just died. Another reason is, and this is a, this is a really interesting reason, she said, I know you're a righteous and holy man. That I have no doubts about. I'm just wondering, did you tell the full truth about the miracle that you did with the flour and the oil? It could be that instead of this coming directly from God as a, as a miracle that God wanted you to do, you used these powerful names of God to make this miracle occur. Now, what's the difference? The difference is, of course, that if a person is just making a miracle using the names of God, they, they, they kind of... They're using up their good credits. She said, the whole year we've been surviving on this incredible miracle of the flour continuing and the oil continuing, and we've survived. But at the same time, it could be that we're just we're using all our good credit along this journey because this isn't something that God wanted us to do. We kind of use this incredible powers that God put into the world, these names of God, and of course only a righteous person could activate it. But still, we're using up all our credits. Now that we've used all our credit, a year's gone by, we're using this miracle. Now, of course, I have no more credit left, so now my son passes away. And so she said, in that case, this entire situation is your fault, Elio Anobi. And the fourth reason is, she said, righteous people, especially someone like Elio Anobi, that every single action they do is look through a mirror. She, not through a mirror, through a magnifying glass. And she said, God doesn't look at me so seriously. I'm, I'm, you know, she's a wonderful person and a very righteous person compared to the rest of the city, much more righteous than them. But... Eliyahu Navi, every action he does, the tiniest action is look through a microscope because God judges um, powerful and great people by extremely high standards. But he said, when God's looking at you through a microscope, because you're in my house all day, you know, that microscope's also looking at me all the time. So now I'm getting judged by your standard. And of course, I can't stand. I, I can't stand to stand, you know, being judged by your standard. And of course, Hashem's now judging me so critically that I shouldn't decide it. I'm, I'm deserving of a, of, a, of a punishment. So she lay the blame for the passing of us. And literally she was holding the lifeless body of Yoina. And she told Elio, this is all your fault. Elio told the mother, hand me the child. Elio was extremely distraught to see that Yoina had passed away. So she hands the lifeless body to Yoina. And Yoina takes the boy, walks up the stairs to his own attic, to his room. And places Yoina on his own bed. And then Elio does something that's really fascinating that we see a similar thing that happens later on with his own disciple, Elisha. Yoina lays the, bo the boy on the bed. He's lifeless. And he puts his face, he, he puts his face on top of his face. He stretches, Elio stretches himself out over the lifeless body. And he cries to God to return the soul of Yoina back into the body. Now, We've heard stories possibly of people coming back alive, but such a precedent hadn't really happened in such a way before. And Elio prays to God. He says, we always beg you, God, that you bring Mashiach, that you bring people that already passed away, bring them back alive. But the Jewish people need to see an example. It needs to be real for them. How about bring this child back alive and then people will see this boy, Yoina, walking around the streets and they'll say, you know, this boy, he died. And he came back alive. And that same thing is going to happen when Messiah comes, when Mashiach comes. So Eliyahu told God, 
there's, there's more than just saving this boy. Do do this in the merit that Jewish people should have Mashiach be a real thing for them. And Elio also understood that this suffering that was happening to this woman was as a result of him. You know, he was he was not cancelling the curse. And so Elio said, "It's bad enough that you're that, like it's it's you're upset at me, but don't punish this woman just because she's surround she's in my vicinity." Let her child come back alive. And three times Elio stretched himself out over the lifeless body and cried and begged God to return the soul of Yoina back into his body. And he came back alive. Just like that. Just as he had passed away, Yoina suddenly became alive again. And Elio returned the boy and said, look, your son is alive. Now what happened behind the scenes? What's very interesting is they say about Hashem, that the, Hashem has three keys that He doesn't give. Out. He doesn't give out. It's three powers in this world that that are exclusively God's. One is rain, one is childbirth, and one is revival of the dead. These three keys are godly key. Are godly keys creating rain, just making rain exist. That's that's a god. A god. A power that Hashem, of course, every power in this world belongs to God, and everything belongs to God. But this is a power that's that's something that Hashem God utilizes. God God controls. And these three keys are something that, that Hashem will give out. The Tosis explains that Hashem, when Hashem gives a key to someone, He only gives it for temporary, for temporary use. Hashem will sometimes say, okay, here's one key. But the rule is like this. Because these, these keys belong to God and are the exclusive, like this is a, a godly um, power, Hashem says like this, I'll give it temporarily to someone to use. In this case, Yonah, for example. Um, 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 Elio, for example. Elio had the ability to use that key now he wanted to bring someone alive. Hashem said, if you want to bring someone alive, you're going to have to give me back the key of rain. Because people are going to walk around and say, the teacher, God, only has one key, and the student, Eliyahu, has two keys. So God said, oh, you want, you want to revive this young Yoina? Okay, no problem. Now give me back the key of rain. And I'll give you the key to revive him, to, to revive him, to bring him back alive. And Elio so badly wanted Yoni to come back alive. And remember, as you're going to see along the podcast, their story is going to inter- interwine so much. Elio says, all right, the key of rain is yours, God. And I, I want to I wanna bring this young boy back alive. And that's exactly what happened. Hashem revived um, Yoina. Yoina came back alive. But at this point, Hashem turns to Elio and says... That's it. The famine's over. You need to now go to King Acham and tell him that the famine's going to be over. Because I—that's it. You—you you, don't—you're not holding any of the street. The key, you're not holding the key anymore. Which means you don't have the power to determine how long this famine's going to go. Even though the Jewish people hadn't repented, God was seeing how much suffering there was that was going among the Jewish people. And Hashem said, "Okay, I just need this to be over. Let the let, let the Jewish people finish all the suffering. Let people, you know, have." Have rain and, and happiness and kindness, even whether they whether they do the right thing or whether they don't do the right thing. So straight away, Hashem instructs Elio, time to go down now. You don't get to make the call anymore. Now I'm instructing you, go to King Ahav and end the famine. And that's exactly what happened. Elio went down. And Elio tells King Ahav, the... The famine is going to be over, but before before it is, let's make a competition. Let's see if me, one prophet of God, is is real, or if your prophets, the 450 prophets of Baal, and your wife, who Isabel, Jezebel, was all very involved in the Asherah cult, in, the, in a particular idol worship that was dreadful in, in, in a million ways, let's make a competition to see who's more powerful. And King Ahav agreed. And this became one of the most famous events, one of the most incredible miracles that the Jewish people all saw. They, they all were witness to this incredible miracle. And they went to the top of a mountain, Har Carmel, in Israel, and they built a, an altar. And King Ahav said, what we'll do, uh, what the competition will be, that the Eliyahu and Navi agreed that the, the competition should be, and King Ahav agreed to this as well. They'll make an altar, they would put two twin cows on the altar, each one would have a turn, and they would beg their god or their idol, Eliyahu obviously just, just, just begged from God to make fire come from heaven. And whoever had fire come from heaven was, of course, the real person. And that's exactly what happened. Ahav, believing that all his idols were all real and that this would be really embarrassing for Eliyahu and Navi, for Elijah, called all the, the prophets of Baal, convinced them all to come, or as many as he could get. 450 of them showed up. And all the Jewish people came to watch this incredible spectacle. 
Meanwhile, Chael, that man that we talked about earlier on who had rebuilt Jericho, he had a whole bunch of misgiving and doubts whether, you know, fire would really come from heaven. So he did the obvious plan. He hid himself under, or he created a tunnel underneath the mountain, and the tunnel finished right underneath the wooden altar. And he said, you know, I'll wait for people to be screaming to the idol, and then I'll just light a fire underneath. It won't come from heaven, but the fact that the fire came by itself, that will be enough for King Ahav to win the, to win the competition. And that will be, you know, an incredible, incredibly embarrassing situation for Elijah. So that's exactly what he did. He built a tunnel, and the, some of the prophets even knew about this plot, this plot. And so they started screaming and shouting and doing all the, the idol-worshipping rituals. And Elijah watched on the side. And he mocked them. He made fun of them while they were doing all their rituals and while they were doing all the idol worshiping, trying to get fire to come from heaven. Elio literally just stood on the side and laughed and made jokes and just mocked them the whole time. And meanwhile, they're screaming loud because they know that hell is hidden, or some of them knew that hell was hidden underneath. What had happened is Hashem just made a snake come. The snake bit hell and he died. So he was lying dead underneath. They were screaming as loud as they could, hoping that. Either their God, those that actually believed, hoping that their, their their Baal God would somehow answer them and send fire from heaven, and the rest of them that knew about the plot were hoping that Hell got the message. Now's the right time to light the fire underneath the whatever the case was. Nothing, of course, happened, and it got later and later in the day. And at some point, Elio says, "Okay, it's my turn." He even started making fun. Maybe your your idol worship, maybe your God is old and deaf and he can't hear you properly. But at some point he said, okay, it's my turn. And then he called his student. And we'll talk about his students in a moment. But Elisha, he called Elisha. And he told Elisha, I want you to pour water onto my hands. And he had that water then spill over the, over the wood. He wanted the sacrifice and the, the altar and all the wood and everything to be covered in water. In fact, he got all the Jewish people and he told them, before we start, I want you to all join me. We're going to dig trenches around the actual um, altar. So the mountaintop, all the Jewish people joined. It was this incredible, incredible experience where all the Jewish people joined. And they, of course, and you know, I, I don't think a lot of them believe that this was actually going to happen, but this was such an interesting competition. People were so emotionally invested. They dug these tremendously large trenches. And then Elisha poured water over Eliyahu's hands and water kept on flowing. And the water flowed, a small jug of water flowing over Elio's hands. And from his hands, it just kept on spilling and spilling and spilling. started filling the trenches. And these trenches that surrounded the, this, the, the Mizbeach, the altar, where the, where the animal was on top, kept on getting full and full until water was covered everywhere, making the miracle that much more great. Because if it was all dry, like crisp, and a tiny little spark came from heaven, that would light it all up. But now that everything was so drenched, and not just drenched, that like it was wet, it was there was trenches filled with water. There was there was water plus so much more. Everyone watched them and realized, okay, this is this is this is impossible. There's no way that this is going to happen. And then Eliyahu begged God. It was Mincha time, and Mincha has ex- the, the second prayer of the day. Mincha has exceptional power. Eliyahu begged God. Bring a miracle so all the Jewish people could see that you are the true prophet. And that you are the true God. And of course, Elio was a true prophet. And Hashem made fire come from heaven. The fire was so powerful, it, it, it um, evaporated all the water. It lit the sacrifice on fire. And the Jewish people saw this. They saw this incredible miracle that was entirely above, above logic. And the king himself saw it too. King Ahab was watching the spectacle. He was watching the competition. He was very involved and very invested. And when, he, when King Ahab saw this miracle, King Ahab was exceptionally inspired to return to God. He sat down with a feast after all the Jewish people said, okay, we accept God as, as our God. And Elio started this incredible renaissance, this incredible movement to return to God and People and mass all left their idols and said, "We're going to return to God." As you're going to see in a moment, it wasn't it wasn't as as lasting as Elio had hoped. But King Acha, for the meanwhile, was exceptionally inspired, and he became returned to God. Elio was so inspired that the king had returned to God. Elio gave him a tremendous amount of respect. In fact, he ran ahead of his own of the king's um, wagon. Um, uh, heading back to the castle because Elios told the king now that this miracle has happened and now Elios saw this mo- mo- moment of repentance and also God had told him that the, the famine was going to be over so he warned the king he said listen it's going to rain in a moment make sure you're home because if you're not home you're going to get drenched 
So the king said, okay, the party's over, time to go home. And Eliol Hanavi ran ahead of the wagon in honor of the king who had just repented. And once the king got back, the rain began and the famine was officially over. The problem was, of course, that Eliol was now a wanted man, not by the king, but by the king's wife. The king's wife was livid about what had happened. Her husband had now suddenly returned to God, which was not something she sanctioned in the slightest, Fire had come from heaven, and Elio had personally killed 450 of the priests of Baal. All these idol-worshipping priests who had all tried to, who had all lost the competition, Elio said, well, the, you know, the deal of the competition is they're going to be killed. And Elio and Navi had killed them. He was an old man. He killed them all himself. Not a single one remained, and Izevo was absolutely livid. And she instructed, Elio still has a, a hit on his head, you're to find Elio Hanavi and to kill him. And when Elio realized, after the, such an incredible miracle of Har Karmel, of what had happened, fire from heaven and all the Jewish people seeing this, and he saw that it wasn't having a lasting impact, he became so broken. He went, he, he ran, he ran, of course, because his life was in danger, and he ran, and he couldn't even run to the south because there was peace between the two kings of the north and south. And he realized they would just, they would tell the king of the south, send over, we have this criminal who had escaped to the south. And so, Eliohad was absolutely broken. He went to a juniper tree. He sat down under it and he said, God, I'm ready, for, I'm ready to pass away. Take my life away. And Hashem hadn't talked to him. Eliohad wanted to have communication with God. But unlike, you know, Moshe, who could always request God whenever he wanted, Eliohad had to wait until God was ready to talk to him. And so Eliohad was extremely broken and Eliohad wanted to, to finish. And that's exactly what happened. We'll continue the story next week. But over the 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 stories that happen next, Eliyahu officially resigns from being a prophet or an active prophet of 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 God, as he had been for all those years until then. And instead, his students, Yoina, Elisha, Micha, and Avadia, the four famous students of Eliyahu, including Yoina, the the hero of our story, who was educated by Yoina after Yoina had saved his life, he became one of the foremost students of Elish of Elio Anavi. They kind of took over the jobs that Elio was supposed to do. The, the rest of those missions that God had tasked Elio to do, he now gave them over to his students and told them, You're, you guys are prophets, go ahead. You guys are now going to do these special missions that we have to do. And Yoina, as we're going to discuss in the next podcast, is going to do one of the most sensitive, uh, delicate missions that was going to be his job to kind of take over from Elio. He was tasked with this job of going and anointing a king during a very, very dangerous and very sensitive time.